It's my favorite part of every superhero movie. It's the origin story, and everybody has one. Welcome to Pinecone Turkey's The Origin Story Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Henry Harris, and it's my privilege to interview superheroes from all walks of life to find out how they got from A to B, to see where they might be going next, and how we all can learn from their journey. Welcome to The Origin Story Podcast. Happy New Year. Hope your 2020 is off to a good start. I'm feeling really good about this year so far. I hope you are too. Uh, as always, I want to encourage you to join Pinecone Turkey's email list, The Flock. I'll email you twice a month. One will contain updates on Pinecone Turkey's podcasts, of which this is one, The Origin Story, Conversations with Superheroes from All Walks of Life, and also the Owls on Culture podcast, where two generations of owls, me, the dad, and Hank, my son, who's now 13, discuss movies, TVs, YouTube, books, plays, and more. We're currently having a lot of fun recapping each Doctor Who episode that comes out in addition to our regularly scheduled broadcast. So it's a lot of fun. If you have someone around that age group, it might be uh, a good thing to listen to together. Uh, if you are subscribed to the Origin Story Podcast, you also automatically receive the Process Podcast. And that's where Will Haraway of the Haraway Brothers and the Sundogs and I discuss our latest projects. Will is a musician. He writes new music. He gigs. He plays. Uh, he updates on his music. And I update uh, the slow but incremental <laughs> progress in my novel. Uh, it's a lot of fun. We have a good time. Uh, the other email will contain updates on everything else Pinecone Turkey is doing, including the latest blog posts, some cool art and articles that we find, and updates on Pinecone Turkey Publishing, and a couple of new ventures that we're keeping under our hat for now, but we will be, uh, we are working on now and uh, look forward to releasing later in the year. All right, let's get to our guest. January's superhero is Brian Cloudis, and I'm going to read his bio because if I had a bio this awesome, I would want somebody to read it as well. Brian Cloudus has been breaking boundaries in the theater industry since the offset of his career, making a national name for himself by producing shows that do so much more than just tell a story. They immerse audiences for experiences in the most unique, site-specific locations that are all-consuming, mesmerizing, and compelling. He's bringing his vision to the wider world, offering to consult and create custom productions for businesses, communities, and events. And this is his new venture uh, that, that speaks of Brian Cloudus Experiences. So he is the CEO, and he's in taking his environmental work all across the country, expanding at an unprecedented rate. And that is so true. This man is just killing it. He's so busy, and he's doing it the right way. Uh, he is also the founder and artistic director emeritus of Serenby Playhouse, the nation's premier outdoor site-specific theater company which was recently named one of the top 20 theaters in the nation by Playbill. That is so outstanding and amazing, and we talk a lot about that. Um, what he and the board down there and everyone else has done at Serenby is just, it's really spectacular. Uh, if you're in the Atlanta area at all or uh, want to see some great theater, it's worth a trip, uh, even from out, from out of town, certainly. Uh, he has performed and directed in Tokyo, London, Canada, Central and South America, the Caribbean, New York City, L.A., and in almost every other major city in the United States. Brian was named the top artistic director in Atlanta and one of the top 20 Atlantans to watch by Creative Loafing, and one of the top 15 Atlantans under 40 by Atlanta Homes and Lifestyles magazines. He's one of the top 40 under 40 by Georgia Trend, and one of the most eligible bachelors in Atlanta by Jezebel magazine, and one of the most influential Atlantas in the entertainment industry by Men's Book Atlanta, and recently named and renamed one of Atlanta's 500 most powerful leaders by Atlanta Magazine. So, so yeah, and he's and he's and he's and he's pretty young too. Um, it, this was a real joy uh, to talk to him. Uh, I think you'll will enjoy it. Also, I first met Brian when I moved back from New York City and was reaching out to folks in the Atlanta theatrical community. Uh, we had a coffee, and I was just so impressed with everything that, that he was doing down at Serenby. And then a few years later, we were uh, lucky enough to work together in an excellent production of Assassins, uh, directed by Justin Anderson, who has also been a guest on the podcast. 
Brian is one of the good guys. He thinks big. He makes big things happen. He's smart. He's funny. He's driven. And he's a joy to spend time with. Uh, so I hope you will enjoy spending time with him. Without further ado. Well, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm sipping my coffee here. <laughs> do it, do it, do it. Uh, I want to start off with uh, something I know nothing about, but I want to hear. I've just seen some posts on it. What is the Thousand Mile Yard Sale? Oh, my God. It's the most incredible event of the year. Tell me. Um, so me and my sister, Brianna, my twin, we have been going to this yard sale, which P.S. starts in our hometown of Alabama, Gadsden, Alabama, and it is a consecutive thousand miles of a yard sale that works its way all the way up the East Coast. And, you know, she has three kids. I'm doing some skits everywhere, but we always keep that weekend sacred. It is blocked out no matter what is going on in our lives. We always go to the thousand mile yard sale and we go for three days and we get about 300 miles into it but we buy a bunch of crap we don't need but it is literally just a thousand consecutive miles of yard sales and i mean the people watching the food it's our it's our twin pilgrimage we wear matching t-shirts and just like embrace the entire thing uh, and, absolutely pe love and people that. always like want to go with us we do not allow it not even her kids. Nobody can go. Oh, if you let too. one, then what are you yes, going to do? Yes, absolutely. So uh, we love it. What are some amazing things you've 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 purchased or seen? Oh my! I mean, I've seen everything. Um, we've purchased a lot of stuff, actually. You know, she she has a farmhouse that she's redone. Um, I'm always purchasing like random gadgets for shows. Um, and, you know, I just redid a house um, these past two years, and I was buying stuff for the house. I mean, I will say the deals you get are insane you know and there's tons of antique dealers who go there and get a table for nothing right. and they'll mark it up 12 times so we we're pretty snotty about deals <laughs> we like the cheap stuff you know we will not pay a lot for antiques i gotcha all right so you grew up in gaston yes uh you have any other siblings just bring in and gadston is the city the town is actually Hoax Bluff, which Hoax is outside Bluff. of Gadsden, but we kind of use them interchangeably. But Hoax Bluff is the tiny town inside of Gadsden, and I, just me and my sister Brienne. And how was it to grow up there? I mean, it was stereotypical Southern town. Um, there were wonderful things about it, which I've really embraced now. Um, you know, it was a very small community. I lived, we called it the plot. My mom was a single parent. So we lived on the same plot of land as my grandparents, my great grandparents, and my great aunt and uncle. Um, and we called it the plot. So we just kind of roamed around on the plot of land while my mom worked. Um, and, you know, we loved it. I, I mean, I will say, there were some negative things about growing in a growing up in a very small southern town. Um, you know, especially as I got into high school, I dealt with bullying and all of those things, and I was very definitely like itchy to get out of Hoax Bluff, Alabama. But now I've really embraced the southeast. I mean, I love being a southerner. I love all of the wonderful things that you know, encompass um, small southern towns. And I, I, you know, I really do see a lot of change happening in these southern towns. And I'm able to see all of the good growing up there. And, you know, I'm going home to Alabama um, tomorrow. And I mean, I'm so excited to like see my mom and hang out in Hoax Bluff. But, you know, if you had asked me when I was 18 years old, I'd have been like, I want to get out. Um, but the separation um, and space has allowed me to just really love everything about being from the South. What advice would you give um, somebody, middle school or high schooler, who may be being bullied or maybe in this kind of situation where they're in a small town, they might feel different? It will make you a stronger person. It sucks, and I don't think that anybody should have to go through it, but I guarantee you I would not be as strong and resilient and passionate and hard-headed as I am now if I had not faced a little bit of adversity growing up um, because it really makes me appreciate being who I am because I am very self-aware. I'm unapologetically myself. And people typically love me or hate me. There, there's not a lot of gray, you know. Right. And I'm, I'm very, I'm just very blunt. I mean, and I try to be a good person and be nice to people. But I will tell you, all of that, you know, you hear the term character building, which I kind of hate that term, but I will tell you, it made me resilient and it made me, um, 
really embrace, you know, this journey of becoming who you are, it's really been a, a huge building block in self-acceptance and not taking shit from people. Can I cuss? Oh, say please. Shit? Okay. Fuck you. Yeah. Yay! <laughs> shit! <laughs> I mean, it's really made me not take shit from people, period. You yeah. know? And, and made me really want to be a person who, who accepts everyone. And my whole thing is like, I don't have to agree with your beliefs, but I want to respect everyone. And my goal is to try to always look for how we're similar as humans as opposed to different. Are you and your mom close? Very close. I'm a big old mama's boy. Yeah. Um, and my granny helped raise me. And then, of course, my sister Brienne. So, you know, I was surrounded by this um, incredible orb of powerful Southern women, you know. Um, so, like, my mom and my granny and my sister really made me who I am. So I'm extremely close to my family. That's very cool. So you did get out, though, and where did you go? So I went to undergrad to Amherst College in Massachusetts. So that's that's the 180. That was I was like, <laughs> get me out of here as quick as I could. Um, where else were you looking at, and why did you choose Amherst? So I knew I wanted to be in the Northeast, um, and, you know, I'd always followed in the footsteps of my sister, and I just thought, she hung the moon, you know, and she went to Dartmouth, um, and she was the first person ever in Hoax Bluff High School to one, go out of state to school, or two, to go to an Ivy League college. And like, we came from nothing. We were like, we, we grew up in a double wide trailer. You know, we're first college generation, or we're first generation college out of the family. And Brienne just knew she wanted to get out and she wanted to to go to an Ivy League school. It's what she talked about her whole life. So when I started looking at schools, I knew I wanted to be in that like grouping of Ivy League or sister, they call them sister Ivies. You know, Amherst is a sister Ivy. And I knew that I wanted to be in the Northeast. So I applied to a bunch of schools in the Northeast. Um, and Amherst was the best school I got into. So it wasn't even like, you know, a question it was like, that's the best school I got into. So I accepted blindly. And then I went, and I was like, oh, this is beautiful, you know? Yeah. I remember when I got down to I was like, oh, thank God he got into a good school. It was very important <laughs> yeah. to her. You know, I never wanted to disappoint my sister. Oh, wow. That's interesting. Uh, where did you find theater? Was that in high school or was that at college? It was actually through my grandmother, um, who played the piano in church, Granny. Everyone called her Granny. So from the moment I could walk, I sang in church, and I grew up hearing my Granny play the piano. So I actually got my performance, like a lot of people from the Southeast in church. I always said my first tour was the revival circuit. <laughs> so like granny would play the piano and I'd be in my cute little suit and people just all all over me. You know, I didn't, I didn't know what I was singing at the time, of course, but I knew I loved the attention the congregation gave me. And then I started doing actual plays in kindergarten and, you know, got very involved in the drama club at school and then did community theater um, at the Theater of Gadsden. And I, I mean, I knew very early on it's what I wanted to do. From the earliest age I could remember, I knew I wanted to be a performer, and it was always my absolute dream. So did you perform at Amherst? And I did. And, you know, my, my degree is in theater and dance, um, and I, I performed— I mean, exclusively those four years. I mean, you know, that was my passion. I moved to New York as an actor. I mean, that's how you and I met, you know, in Assassins. And for me, I directing and producing, it wasn't even something I wanted to do. You know, that's something that's really come, I mean, in the past, you know, 10 to 12 years, really. But I was just passionate about performing. Um, and then, you know, my graduate degree is in acting. My MFA is in acting. Like, I just thought I was going to be an actor my whole life. And then I realized that my true talent is directing and producing. And I mean, and I love acting still. And, you know, I still every few years I'll probably do something, you know, but it's it's really freeing for it to not be the way you make money. You know, it really is. <laughs> that is you know, so true. It's not the way I eat. I mean, directing and producing is how I eat. So I, I love it. But I also think. Every aspect of my journey as an actor helped inform me to be the director and producer I am because I'm an actor's director. You know, I th who do I think of first? I think of the actors. You know, it's what I always think of first. Yeah, I get that 100% in the same way also with within my writing. Yeah. You know, make it's sure like the actor thinking, has something like, awesome to do. What would it feel like if I was saying this? Exactly. You know, what would it feel like if I was, you know, I direct actors the way I would want to be directed? Did you have a good experience at Amherst? I loved it. Yeah. I mean, for me, it was great because it was a small program. Um, it was quintessential New England. And, you know, from this like little southern boy, 
making that leap into the Northeast, it wasn't like dropping me in the middle of New York. You know, it was still a very small community. Um, and I was a big fish in a small pond, which is something I love. And I am fine to say that. Um, I loved being the star there. It, it really helped build me up, especially, you know, those four years of high school. I mean, it got rough towards the end. You know I mean? I was always like theater. I mean, theater was really my escape. But, you know, I was personally kind of beat down because I felt, you know, I felt like I didn't belong. And then I went to Amherst and it was like, you know, being gay or being different was like cool. And I was like, oh, okay. I was like, I'm gay Alabama. You know what I mean? It's like people just like embrace it. It's like, Brian, he's the gay guy from Alabama. Oh, isn't he cute? You know? That's outstanding. Yeah, so I loved loved my time there. I mean, it also allowed me to be like close enough to New York to where I would go and I started auditioning for like all of my summer gigs. So even though I was in Massachusetts for four years, every summer I was doing summer stock somewhere else like in the Northeast. So that proximity to New York was just close enough. It was like a three-hour drive. But, yeah, I mean, I loved my time at Amherst. Did you go straight to uh, South Carolina MFA, or did you go to New York first? I didn't. I went to New York. So I I finished my undergrad degree, and then I got recruited out of school from my acapella group. I was in an acapella group, of course. (laughs) I mean, yeah. Um, Shocker. Shocker, right? A cute little, like, all-boy acapella group. I was recruited to a cruise line. So randomly, a cruise casting person was in the audience and was like, you know, like, you'd be great on a cruise line. Like, little did I know, it just mean I was really extra, you know? And so I immediately got hired, and I went on a ship for six months. Holy and, shit, yeah, I was, was a, that... That's amazing. Oh, my God. It was just the best thing to do right out of my... <laughs> I mean, like, literally... I'd graduate and I went on this cruise line for six months and they treat you like royalty on those ships. You know what I mean? I saved some money and then I moved to New York and I was in New York for almost four years. And then I went to Japan for a year. I worked with Tokyo Disney as a singer. And then right after that, I went to grad school. Okay. Tell me a little bit about your your New York experience uh, and the decision then to go get your MBA. What MFA? What made you uh, want to do that? So the first year in New York, I absolutely loved it. I felt like Mary Tyler Moore running around, like throwing my hat up in Times Square um, because I booked a national tour immediately. I know. I was like, look at me. The Tony Awards coming next year. This stuff's easy. Yeah. I mean, literally, it was like, oh, God, look at this. I'm just like booking them left and right. And so I booked my national tour literally within two weeks of being there. And I just felt so high on life. So like that first room that was in New York, I was touring most of the time. Then I came back and I booked Frankenfurter and Rocky Horror at a theater in Hoboken. So I was like, oh, my God, a dream role. I get to live in New York and like go to Hoboken. How perfect is this? Then I got done with that gig. And then I booked the MC and Cabaret at a theater in Massachusetts. So I was just like, holy shit, I'm doing it. Like I'm literally that like crazy story of like, making it and then comes my two years of not working so it was like boom 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 and then like two years of like crickets and those two years were hard um and it really dawned on me that 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 horror story of i mean you might not ever get another job it just really dawned on me you know it's like i don't know if i can do this so like two years of like waiting tables catering doing odd and in office jobs and I just hit this low point where I was like, I'm miserable here. And it really made me start to miss my family um, and just miss like working, you know? So right about that time that I was hitting this low point, I went, I saw a casting call, you know, backstage. You'd get the actual paper back in the day and yep. highlight things. Um, and there was a last minute replacement for a six foot two cowboy western singer through tokyo disney and i was like i was like oh my god it's a sign so i went in and they measured me immediately and i booked it so when i got that gig i packed up and it was very quick you know i packed up my new york apartment and shipped everything home and said i'm never coming back wow okay i I was like i was like i knew i knew i was like i'm not coming back i'm moving to japan and i'm gonna figure it out and I didn't even got to that point where I was like, do I even want to do theater anymore? Um, you know, because there's other things I love. You know, what I mean, I would, I mean, theater's always been my passion, but I was like, oh, could I do, you know, event planning or like something around like production? Because I've always loved those aspects of it. And so I went to um, Japan 
incredible experience. And I was like, you know what? I want to go back to school. I knew that was part of my journey in Japan. And I was like, I'm going to be open to, to different kinds of programs. So I do, started doing tons of research. And I just found myself landing on the theater page. And I was like, you know, it feels weird to study something else when my whole life has been about this. So I was like, you know, I want to get my MFA. I want to really focus on acting because up until then, I was like commercial musical theater boy. I could sing, dance. You know, I could sing and, you know, dance. Um, and I was cute as a button, but I was like, I really want to like work on just acting. That was something that kind of terrified me. So I applied to a bunch of programs and um, I got into University of South Carolina um, and then got into Brandeis and got into University of Central Florida. And Brandeis was like the program to go to. You know, I visited very prestigious, you know, and then I went to University of South Carolina, not as prestigious, but I just got a weird gut feeling. I was like, I'm supposed to be at this school I was like, I can see my family regularly. And I was like, there's, and the, it just felt so warm and lush and beautiful. And then I would just come from like a snow trip at Brandeis in Massachusetts. And Brandeis felt like Amherst. And I was like, I'm supposed to go to South Carolina. I just knew it. And had I not gone to South Carolina, I would have never started Serenby Playhouse, which is kind of one of those moments of like, listen to your gut, even when you can't figure out why it's like the universe sometimes gives you those signs yeah and but you have to be open to listening to them and then you, you have, have to act on that that feeling yeah you have to act you can't just do. sit around and like wait for shit to happen it's like you have to listen and then you got to do uh how was your mfa experience at south carolina did you uh was it did you get out of it what you wanted to i absolutely loved it it was the perfect thing for me the program um a couple of things that made it really cool. Um, they had just gotten the heads of the University of Washington program. And, I, you know, at the time, I didn't realize that that was a top five program. But it was I got the benefit of a like a top five MFA training program at a southern university. And their work is heavily based in Suzuki. And that just sort of blew my mind. You know, it was like I had never I had never really trained physically in that way. Mm. And it really kind of got me into this journey of, like, the simplicity of acting. It just, the whole training thing blew my head in that it's a lot easier than we try to make it out to be. It's like we're trying to replicate human life, you know? How do you sit in a chair? How? And they would ask me questions like, okay, in that scene where you touch in the desk, and I was like, I don't know. And they were like, well, your hands were on it, but you weren't actually feeling it. Just like really simple things that kind of made my head explode. And they were really big on being generative artists and creating your own work. So for our thesis, we had to write, direct, star, costume, all a one-person show. And that really led... That is a great idea. Yeah, and it, it really led to me thinking... I like creating, I like producing, and I want to be in charge of my career. I don't want to constantly be auditioning, waiting for opportunities. It just felt so cool to do it all. You knew then. I knew then, and that was like, you know what? I think I want to direct and produce. And it all kind of lined up with me visiting Serenby on a whim with my sister when I was in grad school, and just the stars aligning of like, hey, this is a cool place. I think I want to start a theater company, and it it's just crazy how life works. What was your one-man show about? So I'm, I know it's shocking, I'm a huge fan of Judy Garland and Joan Crawford. <laughs> <laughs> so I did this homage to, um, it was in drag, and something I, I'd never really done, I mean, I've done sort of drag flamboyant characters, but completely in drag, and it was basically a behind-the-scenes interview with um, this actor who was an homage to Judy Garland. And I wove stories from my past, um, a, a story about my mom, my sister, my granny, the three women, women in my life, in this behind-the-scenes interview, but with a 1940s lens of this, like, chain-smoking diva. And I was able to tell these stories about my past, but with a little bit different... Um, you know, time period and people that allowed me to really be completely honest with it. That's beautiful. Yeah, it was it was fun though. It was really cool and you know, it was kind of funny and sassy, but yeah, 
Amit, what was her name? I can't remember her name. A few years ago, Amajine something. It was fun though. It was called Technicolor Memoirs. Oh, good title. Uh, so tell me about this this trip to Serenby with your sister. This is kind of I want to explore this. Yeah. So it was. 12 years ago, it was um, right before I started grad school, actually. I'd gotten into South Carolina, and I was like, you know, my family was just over the moon that I was coming back to the Southeast for grad school. And my sister had said, hey, there's this new little community that's popped up. Um, My sister, Brianne, said there's this new little community that's popped up, and it's called Serenby. And we've had dinner there, and it's kind of weird, but it's kind of cool. So you should come check it out. They're, they're doing this, like, 4th of July parade. So I was like, oh, that sounds kind of fun. And so we drove, like, through the middle of nowhere. I can still remember, like, through Palmetto, Georgia. And I'm like, where the heck are we <laughs> going? And then you see this cute little, like, homemade Serenby metal sign. And you turn into what feels like Disney World. I mean, literally, I was just like, this is like Pleasantville. But the people were like really nice and they seemed really welcoming. And they, it seemed like very artsy. There was all this public art and it just felt, it felt really special. And I got that weird gut feeling. I was somehow connected to this place. And I went to grad school and I kept thinking about this little community called Serenby. And I was like, you know what? I don't know why, but I'm going to email them. Like, I don't know a soul there, but I'm just going to drop them a line and tell them I thought their community was really cool. And I would love to get involved in some type of theater development in their community. And so I sent that email. It was right as I was about to end my first year of grad school. And I just introduced myself and said, I would love to be involved in theater development. And they emailed me back and they were like, oh, great, come have coffee with us. Just like super casual. And so, of course, like for that meeting, I like I had my notes and I was prepped of like, oh, you know, this is what a theater would look like in your community and just had all this stuff prepped out. And it was so casual and cool. And they were like, oh, well, you know, if you if you really are serious about this theater thing, there's not a space here. So what would you do? And I literally in that moment said, oh, let's just try it outside. I was like, you know, I've performed as an actor. I did Lost Colony in, you know, Manio, North Carolina. I was like, we didn't have a theater space. I was like, let's just try it outside and see if it sticks. And they were like, great, you know, put put together, then it got kind of serious, put together a business proposal for us. And I'm like, oh, absolutely. You know, and I had no idea. I mean, I was just an actor, but I was a good actor. So I was able to like (laughs) smile and fake it. So I went home and I was like, okay, you know, because at that point, Amazon was still a bookstore, you know, so you went to Amazon and you ordered like physical books, not Audible. And I ordered, there was like three books on how to start a nonprofit Do you theater remember company. what they were? I don't, or, or, I don't, I can still see the covers, but I don't remember the actual titles, but I could, I could easily sort of Google. But I mean, one of them was literally like how to start a nonprofit theater company, yeah. like X, Y, and Z. And there was like nonprofit theater A to Z. Like, and I, I can get you the titles if you want me to, because it'd be fun to put them in there. And I just read them and I highlight everything and I put together this business proposal based on what these books told me to do. And lo and behold, Sarah B approved it. I was like, oh my God. <laughs> I was like, well, get, I guess now I got to do it. I guess I'm moving there. Yeah. So they gave me $15,000, which at the time, felt like an exhort I was like, oh my, I'm rich. You know what I mean? Like to produce, that just felt so huge to me. And then that first season was $40,000, which at the time felt like an incredible amount of money to produce shows. And then it just, it just kind of took off like wildfire. It's kind of crazy. Uh, I want to fast forward a bit because uh, I don't want to take up too much of your time. What was the show where you felt... Like one that you knew what you were doing, uh-huh. and then two, you could see everybody else buy in. It was the first production of Hair. It was our fourth season, um, and it it was the first time we saw the masses come out. Shows started selling out, and we saw hundreds of people lining up. And it just was that moment where it felt like something groundbreaking. And yeah, but it took four years to, I mean, up until there, you know, we had gotten some good press and people were, it was gaining a little bit of momentum. But that show and that field at that time defined 
Ceremony Playhouse is an outdoor site-specific theater, and it defined me as an artist who creates in unexpected places. It was that moment I can still close my eyes and remember standing on that scaffolding and seeing 300 people lined up and us not even having enough chairs and like mowing grass. And I mean, it was literally like Woodstock, you know? Um, And that was what, that was the turning point for everything. What had you learned to get to that point and how did you, because I, I feel like you are very good at a lot of things, but one of them is definitely maximizing a positive thing. Yeah. Where did that come from? Does that just part of your charisma or what did you learn along the way to be like, this is a moment, we're going to ride this baby and go further? Yeah. I mean, I mean, going back to my past, you know, I came from, I didn't come from money. So that's a luxury I never had. So I've always been really scrappy. And I've always utilized the resources around me. So, you know, I talk about my sister a lot, but, you know, she's my like person. So, I mean, she was like, you've been doing this since you were this tall. You know, she was like, you would get $10 and you would create a 4th of July spectacular on the plot of land. You know, so it's like, I feel like I've always been super resourceful at using what's around me because I didn't have a ton of money, you know? So I feel like I've kind of been doing site-specific work (laughs) as a kid, and I just did it on a larger scale. So when I got that $15,000, I just tried to utilize every single cent I I could use, and I've always tried to really be smart about where do we put our money, you know? Because the thing you always need in theater is more time and more money. So hair, it was not the most expensive production. It was a field, and it was incredible talent, and it was incredible material. And I really learned that the most important things are not sacrificing on the place you're going to do it and not sacrificing on the people you're going to use. So I've always invested in talent, and I've always gone above and beyond to get the coolest place to do it. Let's talk about talent for a little bit. Have you changed how you run auditions and what you are looking for when you hold them now? Oh, gosh. Since when? I guess since your first couple of shows at Serenby. Like, what have you learned about how to audition Mm. other people effectively to get to see what you need to see? Yeah. So I, I, I do take a lot of pride in having a pretty strong gut. And I can tell very quickly if you're going to be a right fit. I'm extremely, I have a a very strong point of view, but I'm also attracted to confidence. I think confidence is really sexy, and I like to be in a room with people that challenge me. I don't want to be in a room with people who are afraid of me. I think that's just, it's not fun. You know I mean? You don't, I, I don't want people to be afraid of me. And, you know, I've been in rooms where I was terrified of the director, and guess what? My performance sucked. You know, but when I come into a room and there's a director who makes me feel at home, but also really challenges me, and I feel like I want to be the best version of this character for that director, that's the environment I try to create. And it happens the first second they walk into that audition room. I'm very nice, I'm very kind, but I'm hard. And I will, my thing in an audition, and I typically don't hold callbacks because I know, I know in that, I know in that moment, if they're one, going to work in the show, because it's typically a a fast process, and I see if they're going to be open to direction, and sometimes you give direction that doesn't even make sense, but you just want to see if they can act quickly on their feet, and also if they can kind of banter with you and have fun, because... I would rather be in the room with someone who's maybe a little bit less talented but more joyful to be around than an asshole who's super talented. Because I always say I I will not work with divas. And there's like the fun diva that's like, you know, fabulous and sweet. But like I I have a zero tolerance for disrespect. And it's taken me – and I I used to be kind of disrespectful. I was – you know, young and cocky, and I drank too much and partied too much, and I just thought I hung the moon when I became very successful very quickly. But I mean, I'm, you know, my goal is to be, to to work with a lot of humility and to not let my ego get in the way. And especially in the past couple of years and this new chapter I've created, I I really want to to do good, and I want to not be the most important thing. I want my work to be the most important thing. And I want 
the people in the room with me to be the most important people, and I want to truly affect community. And that's my mission. You can get a lot done when you either, one, don't care who gets the credit, or two, if you make other people's successful and their dreams come true, oftentimes yours do as well. And it feels good. I mean, it truly, it feels good, and it makes you full of joy to see people you love successful. And if it doesn't, there's something wrong with you. And I I mean, I've gone through at times where, you know, it's like, well, I built that person. How dare they? But, you know, I think when you get to a place to where you truly can celebrate people you love, success, it's just more fun. Really. Yeah. Let's talk about the decision not to drink. Yes. Uh, where did that – yeah, tell that story and and – yeah. So my dad, who I haven't talked about a lot, he and my mom got divorced when I was six months old. So he was really not in the picture a lot. He was an alcoholic and his entire family were alcoholics. And so I'd always grown up with this like stigma of like alcohol was bad. So I never drank in high school. And then, you know, I, I, I started drinking in college and I just became this like party boy, you know, and I, I never... I mean, I say I never, you know, had an accident or I got a DUI or, you know, ran over an animal or anything drunk. But I got to this point about three years ago where I just found myself turning from it being this like fun thing of like being a party boy to like turning to alcohol when things got hard or finding myself not remembering the last time I didn't drink at night. And finding myself realizing I was drinking alone every night. And just kind of this like, oh, my God, I don't want to end up like my father. Um, and it, it just kind of like spiraled very quickly. And I just I woke up this one day and thought, you know what? I want to take a break. So I'm going to and I'm, you know, I'm very strong headed when I make a decision. I'm going to do it. I was like, I'm going to take a month off from drinking and just see how I feel. And that first week, it was like a Judy Garland in the corner. You know what I mean? Like, I was like, oh, my God, I got the DTs over here. And so once I got through my shakes, I literally, I mean, not not that bad. But, you know, I mean, I had gotten to a point where I was just drinking a ton. And it's hard in this industry because everything is like, let's grab drinks. You know what I mean? It's like, oh, let's go get drunk. We've worked so hard. Let's go get wasted. I mean, that's just the norm, you know? And so that day I woke up. I said, I'm going to take a month off. And so I took that month off. And after the month, I was like, I feel really good. I was like, I'm going to just keep going. And then before I knew it, I had let a year go by. And I turned around and looked back at my year. And I was infinitely happier in the year of not drinking. Because I realized I'm an excessive person. I'm either all or nothing. I'm either like drunk or I'm not. And so I said, for me, I think I'm better not drinking. And my family noticed a difference in me. They thought I was more present. They thought I was just there more, you know? And so then I was like, you know, I was like, maybe this is my thing. And then I started looking at like, you know, people that I looked up to who I thought were successful and seemed to be very happy in, in their life. And I realized a lot of those people had cut things out of their life that were distractions whether it be alcohol or drug, you know, drugs or whatever. It just, I realized I was happier. And more than anything, I'd opened more hours up in my day. And that's where everything started to really take off outside of Serenby. And that's when I was able to start doing more work outside of Serenby. And then, I mean, I'm almost three years alcohol-free. And I will tell you, I don't like the word sober because that has such a, polarized. I mean, you hear sober and it's like, oh, bless their heart. I mean, literally, that's what Completely. I think. You know, it's like, oh, bless their heart. They're sober. They're like, oh, are you in a recovery program? I was like, no. I was like, I just stopped drinking. I was like, but some people need that 12-step program. For me, I did not need it. I just made a decision to stop drinking and I realized I was much happier without it. And I just feel better, you know, because I don't have the willpower to have a drink. I'm going to get drunk. You know, yeah. and who knows, like a few years from now, if, if I get to a point in my life where I'm like, you know, I feel like I could be moderate, but I don't know. It's just everything is so much richer without it 
the the pros outweigh any kind. I mean, sometimes it's weird to be at a party and like, hey, have a drink. And I'll be like, oh, no, I'm fine. And, you know, but more and more, there's more people not drinking now. So it's becoming more of a norm, you know, of like, hey, let's grab coffee or let's grab tea, you know. Yeah. So, yeah, but it, it really changed my life. So that's awesome. Um uh, Tell me, when did the idea to start doing productions outside of Serenby occur to you, and how how did you make that happen? So it started from an email from this community in Massachusetts called Old Sturbridge Village. They legitimately emailed me out of the blue and said, hey, we've heard about this thing you do, and it's like in a field, and we are wanting to get some cool things in our village, and we have this really awesome environment would you want to come up here and take a look at it? And I was like, well, hell yes. Like, I'd love to. And I flew up there and toured the village, and it felt like Sleepy Hollow. I was like, this is Sleepy Hollow. Like, we've literally landed in the town of Sleepy Hollow. And I was like, we should do Sleepy Hollow up here. And so, lo and behold, that email is what spun off um, me creating Brian Cloudus' experiences because I knew I wanted to start having an identity outside of Serenby. Um, tell me where that, tell me more about that. Yeah, I mean, I I knew that the model I created in Serenby was special, but when I went to this other place, I immediately saw the potential of, a, of being able to scale this um, on a larger level. And it was important to me, to, and I, you know, a lot of theater founders and directors have said, be sure you always maintain your personal brand, because there might come a day when you want to work outside of that company. So make sure you always have an identity outside of the theater you founded. So for me, it was the same type of work. Um, but Can I, I interrupt want, you for just a second. Yes. So how did you? Can you think of any concrete ways that you actually did that and well, worked I, I to formed, maintain that? I formed an LLC. <laughs> I okay. hired a lawyer. <laughs> I mean, you know, those were like the, I mean, I didn't really know what to do, but, and I was, I mean, the great thing is I always had a great relationship with the community and a great relationship with my board. So I was very open with them. I was like, hey, y'all. Um, and the great thing is like, they were always petrified to lose me, you know? So I, I always, you know, I mean, I was very great to them, and they were great to me in return. And I said, hey, I've been approached by this community, and they want me to bring a Sleepy Hollow there. Um, are y'all cool with that? Um, I'll stay in Serenby, but I want to start doing things elsewhere because I'm getting itchy. I was very honest about that. And I said, it's the best of both worlds. You get to keep me here, but then I get to branch out and get my fix elsewhere. And that was really how I operated for, you know, two and a half years until we got to this year to where it was just, I couldn't do both. You know, it really got to the point of where I I didn't feel like I could successfully do both. Um, and I started having so much more fun with Brian Cloud's experiences. I made the decision that it, it was time. It was the universe telling me I had created something really special in Serenby. It was had a, a strong enough foundation that it would continue without me. And that my mission was to take this elsewhere. And it just, it felt like it was the perfect timing to do it. Tell me why it was more fun. Why are you having more fun? Is it just the novelty or not just the novelty? Not but just the novelty. Um, I would say that I, in this year of discovery, have realized I am a person who thrives in different environments. And after 10 years, I almost felt like I had done everything I could do at Serenby. 10 years of skits in a lake, land in this thing. I mean, just like, you know, I'd, I'd used so much of the property. And I was seeing the impact on a community like Serenby on a mass scale. And I saw that same connection I created at Serenby able to do that elsewhere and that initial spark in audiences' eyes. And, you know, I use a lot of local talent in these projects. So seeing these actors who have probably never been challenged in this way, who had done a lot of community theater, who I just came in and just went 100 miles an hour and just saw the potential of changing artists and also changing communities with theater. So you had... You in the last two or three years, you know, bought this house, mm -hmm. redid this house. Yep. I mean, 
pictures looked amazing. Um, and now you've kind of 180 from having this steady home. Can you talk a little bit more about like personally what what you were going through and what that was like? Yeah, so um, for me, I thought that I wanted a big house. I thought that was part of the dream, right? So I found my my dream historic home, which was a big old project, and I spent a year remodeling it. And I will tell you the process of doing that, it was so much fun. It felt like a production. And when the house was finally finished and it was perfectly decorated for Christmas and it did the it was the star of the noon and Christmas tour of homes, the Presbyterian Church, I sat in that house and realized being in that house did not make me one bit happier. And that it felt like now that it was opened, a huge obligation to me. And so this year... So how did that feel when you realized that? I mean, I wanted to throw up. Fuck. You know what yeah, I mean? You did? I was like, oh my God, I've sunk like every single dime. I mean, literally every single dime of savings I had into that house. I've spent a year of it. But then after I got the initial like decision, and my sister was so funny. She knows me. I, I keep talking about her, but she knows me better than I know myself. She said, when you bought that house two things were going to happen. I didn't tell you. She was like, you were going to throw dinner parties every night of the week or you were going to sell it after you finished it. And she was like, after you finished it, you sold it. She was like, I knew you were going to. She was like, because you need to like do it and get it out of your system. Um, so yeah, my house closes end of February and I'm literally homeless in February, but it's like exhilarating. Yeah. So for the past four months, I have been staying in Airbnbs and different venues I've been at. And I have, this has been a big year of realization for me. The same way that I'm inspired by my work of being experiential and being in tons of different places and being ignited by tons of different energy, which comes from people and place, I find the same type of joy in my living environment. So I find a cute Airbnb. I live there for a month. I nest and then I get itchy and then I go to a new place. And I, who, is it permanent? I don't know. I mean, it's a gypsy lifestyle, and it's fabulous. But I think when it gets old, I'll settle down again. But I do know I do not want that much space again. It seemed really novel and fun. It's just a lot to keep up with, you know. But you have to do those things. I was like, why would not everybody want to live in a huge historic home? It's just so fabulous. You know what I mean? Yeah. The idea was more fabulous than the actual, I mean, just like cleaning it. But you, you need know? to know. You need, but you to, need do it. to know. So I'm really big on if you want to do something, do it. And if you find out you don't like it, great. It's one it's thing. It's just an experiment. It's, Boom, it's, move on. It's just a thing. That's yeah. the thing me and my sister say. It's a thing. It's a house. Who cares? Do you have any uh, possession, possessions that make it from each Airbnb to yes. a thing? What so I'm very precious about my luggage. <laughs> really? So I, I have really nice bags. <laughs> All right. That is one thing, because I love the whole process of traveling. So I do. I invested in really nice luggage, and I love, like, unpacking and, like, being super neat. Um, but, like, even my wardrobe, everything is black and gray now. And, like, you know, white T-shirt. But, like, everything is monochromatic because I want everything in my life to be super streamlined. So I'm not, like, spending 20 minutes trying to figure out what I'm going to wear in the morning. I just grab a black T-shirt, black pants, and I just go out the door. And a black hat, it's, like, my signature look because I don't, I don't want to spend time doing that. You know what I mean? But I am precious about certain things that I, like, have to have in a space. Coffee is king. I have to have, like, my coffee maker. Um, do you I have, have a specific brand or type that you love? I don't, but I do. I'm kind of a Starbucks loyalist. Okay. I love Starbucks coffee. I, I can do a K-cup and a, and a pinch, a Keurig, not great for the environment. But in a pinch, I could do a Starbucks K-cup. But I love just, like, a good old-fashioned, like, coffee drip. With like, I'll go get my bag of coffee from Starbucks. So I just love it. Um, and I have to have full half and half. I have tried every single creamer, coconut, oatmeal. All, it just does not taste like full dairy creamer. So that's like my one thing. I have to have half and half or I cannot drink my coffee. Let's talk about a... Uh, coffee tent. <laughs> uh, no, I love that. Um, let's talk about other ways that you have streamlined your life, I'm, I'm particularly interested in how you are keeping all of these projects organized. Um, I'm, do you use a spreadsheet? Is there software that you like? How do you stay? 
How do you make sure you're doing the things you should be doing when you're doing? So I live I live in my calendar. Um, if it's not in Google Calendar, it will not happen. And I just tell people that. So I am very meticulous about scheduling. It might take a year to do. You know, even me and you sitting down, it took a hot second for us to schedule. But I'm getting better and better about putting things in buckets. It's like even today, it's like, okay, how can I make both of these interviews happen it's this day when I happen to be in Atlanta before I go to Alabama. So I'm really trying to put things in buckets and um, put things kind of like uh, batching them as well. You know, a lot of people talk about you batch your things or you bucket things um, and not trying to spread myself so incredibly thin and also taking time off. You know, like I will try to do email for two hours and then get off my phone, you know, because you're less productive when you're trying to do it all because that makes you frazzled. And something that has really helped me, and I know everybody talks about this, and I used to roll my eyes and think <laughs> yeah. it's a bunch of bullshit, is meditating. So my new thing this year, and I kicked it in probably halfway through the year, is, and it, it does not happen every morning, but I would say it happens six days out of seven, is I make myself meditate for 10 minutes. I have this app that tells me what to do. Which one do you use? And I use Wellsen. Oh, I don't know that one. Yeah, I love it. Because it's like, it's like this is your daily meditation. I'm like, great. I click on it. It's not a lot of choices. I don't have time to stroll through and pick out. I was like, daily one. Love it. Click. It's a 10-minute meditation. I do it in the morning. And it makes me think about stuff. And I just sit there for 10 minutes. I do drink my coffee while I meditate because that makes me happy. I have my coffee. I sit there and meditate before I allow myself to get on my phone. Because once I check social media or once I check my email, my mind's just going. So that is my and my my new goal, I've not gotten there yet, is to create half an hour in the morning before I get on email. I'm at ten minutes now. So okay. it's giving me something to work to. Do you journal? I don't journal. Um and I don't judge people who do journal. <laughs> <laughs> That's very open-minded of you. <laughs> I, don't, I, just, I, never, I just never felt the need to journal. A lot of times I, meditation and journal go hand in hand. Yeah, that's, why, know, that's why I was asking. And I know it sounds awful, but I'm not I'm not someone who like I have my I write my to-do list and I do love a written to-do list, but I've never felt the need to write down my thoughts just because they're typically like mulling around in there. So I have not journaled. Do you journal? I do, like but I, it's been a recent. Yeah, it's been in the last couple of years, and it, it came along with like meditation. It? I really do. Do you make yourself journal, or just like when you want to journal? So both. Uh, okay. I have one journal that I do that is just it's called Five Lines a Day or Some okay. Lines a Day. It's a five year journal, and I that is what I definitely do. That it's like part of your practice. It's part of my okay. practice. Part of my morning routine, and it goes right before meditation. And then, I like that there's structure to it. Maybe I, I would embrace that. You know what I mean? And it's not very long. Okay. Like I've tried to do, you know, the artist way and those yeah, morning it's just pages. Like, just open and start. And I'm like, well, where do I go? I can't do the morning yeah. pages. I've tried a billion times. Doesn't happen for me. Um, and then I will also have like if there's something, if there's a project that I'm brainstorming on or daydreaming yeah. on, or if there's a, you know, an issue in my life that I want to fully kind of analyze. I will use a journal for that. Yeah. And I found that that's been pretty helpful. Yeah. And when my mom died, like journaling was really important. Yeah, it was really helpful. It was, it was surprised me. Up. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because, you know, you being a, a writer, I, that's probably a big way for you to like figure things out, right? It has been. For me, I'm a very visual person. So I know it sounds cheesy, but it's almost like hiking or doing things outside is almost my form of journaling because I'm able to really think things through and do something physical and be inspired because I'm a visual director. You know, that is, I, I create things with a picture. That's how I see things. You know what I mean? But maybe I should start journaling. You can always draw in your journaling it's as well. Yeah, just kind of doodle and see what comes out, you know? Exactly. Uh Who's on your team with Brian Cloudus Experiences, and how did you kind of recruit them, and what are you looking for when you have uh, people that – because it's too – all these projects are too big for one person. Yeah, so um, I'm in a, a place of really getting a larger team on the books as we speak, as we go into 2020. Um, so there's like – there's my team that – 
you know, contracts. So I used a lot of the same designers from Serum. I'd give them, you know, double gigs, but I will contract a full design team. Um, I'll contract actors. Um, in this past year, um, as we're wrapping up and launching into 2020, I'm hiring a casting director who's going to start. All this is going to like roll into 2020, but this year has led me to hiring a casting director. Um, an executive assistant who basically also serves as just like the stage manager of my life. And then the main thing is a director of operations. So the one thing that stresses me out are the operations of the company. Um, and not that, like I could sit in a rehearsal room all day long. I could also do marketing 24 hours a day because that's where I'm gifted and that's where I excel. Doing accounting makes me want to like literally strangle myself with that cord right there. But on top of those, you know, I have a lawyer and I have an accounting firm and I pay them to to do those things that they're experts at. Um, so that's my that's like my core team. And then for each show, you know, I'll bring in a production manager or a set of designers. And I also love utilizing local talent. You know, I always go into a community and do local auditions. Sometimes they're really entertaining, but there's always a handful of like really amazing people out of those auditions. Um, and then yeah, I kind of like build teams in you know, these different states. And the great thing, um, aside from or that's different from like with Serenby, I had to do it all from like parking to peeing. I mean, literally, yeah, you were in charge of every single part of that operation. Everything. When I go into a venue, they have a staff that deals with so much of the logistics of like, they're like, this is how parking operates and this is how all this operates. You don't have to think about that. I don't that. have to think about it. So I'm really able to think about the art. So I go in and it's, it, there's just much more, there's, I'm able to do more because there's more support in all of these venues, you know? I just go in, pop up a show, make sure it's selling well and then pop over to the next thing. Are you a goal-oriented person? What do you mean? So you're you have this new business. This uh -huh. is your, your you know you've left Serum B. Like what are your what will make 2020? Uh, how do you judge success? I guess. And I, I feel like I'm a Hallmark card today, but I mean honestly, success for me is joy. I want to create as much as possible. I, I'm in no way and never at Serum B was I like by 2018 I want to have six shows running. I've just never thought that way. For me, I'm hungry by opportunity, and I want to create as much as humanly possible, and I want to see as much of the world as I possibly can. Those are really my goals. But if you ask me where I wanted to be a year from now, I'd say happy and yeah. working. I mean, truly, you know. And I think that's helped me because I never was like, oh my god, I haven't, I haven't hit this X goal because I'm never thinking about what are my like strategic goals and like. And there's and there's a lot of talk um, around like these like having these really specific business plans can actually be very toxic for you because you're thinking about oh my god I'm not hitting my strategic goals. You're always comparing yourself to what you thought you exactly. should be doing. Yeah. So like me, I'm just like you know what I'm happy. I'm doing a ton of shows and I'm busy and I'm like you know I feel good. I mean that's truly my my goal is just to keep working. And then, I, I mean, I can tell when it gets to be too much, and then I need to, like, put on the brakes. And that was my decision to leave Serenby. It The fun started to soak out, you know. Were there warning signs, or was it just, like, a gut feeling of, okay, I'm not, I'm not looking forward to going doing this right now? I would have known. For two years, I started thinking I might have to start making a decision because I saw, I saw myself not being able to be fully present sometimes. And I would find myself, you know, as an example, like sitting in a rehearsal room in Ohio thinking about, oh, shit, I forgot to do that for Serenby or, oh, crap, I didn't do that. You know what I mean? Or be in Serenby rehearsal thinking like, oh, crap. And for me, the, the work, the type of work was the same, but I was happier when I was not in Serenby. And I could not figure out why. And I realized I don't have to. I just know that right now... <laughs> so great <laughs> you know it don't, who gives a shit i mean right. honestly like i don't know but i was like you know what i'm happier in the middle of random ohio and for me the hard thing to really and I, I made the decision this year you know the scary thing for me was leaving a salary which i'd worked very hard to get 
and leaving the possibility of all the national press because I knew that I had created this really tight brand for 10 years and had done some really splashy things that had gotten a ton of national press. But you know what? I was like, the the fear does not outweigh this awesome joy I feel doing these random skits. And the great thing is that things have really blown up and I'm, you know, I'm I'm not worried about money. I mean, I'm always a little bit, you know, I always feel like you need to be a little bit worried about it, but I was like, I'm going to sell my house. I'm going to have a little bit of money in the bank. I'm going to have what I need to live and I'm going to like create as much as I can. I'll still eat, you know, go to the gym occasionally and I'm still getting a ton of national press. And you've already learned the lesson that stuff doesn't make you happy. You've had the stuff, big, huge I house already. I did, and, and I was not any happier. Yeah, the material, it, I mean, you above a certain level. Yeah. If you're not at that certain level, fuck yeah, it's Correct. Important. I mean, you, you don't want to be on the streets, you know, but like it, money does not make you happy. It truly does not. So you said you worked hard to get that salary. Is that you're talking about like the negotiations at the beginning when well, you're no, talking I mean, about, I mean, or just like, like I mean, for day one, I didn't make anything really for a few years in, you know, because I was still in grad school. Right. You know, I mean, I would, you know, I would always pay everyone else more than me because I was, you know, I was in grad school and I had a, a stipend from University of South Carolina. So for me, it wasn't about money. Okay. But then when like I graduated, I was like, oh shit, I was like, I need to make a salary. You yeah. know what I mean? But I mean, it took me, it took 10 years of the budget building up, you know, because I was like, I don't want to get paid unless there's money. But then as the company grew, I paid myself, you know? Oh, yeah. Uh, I could mispronounce this name. Who is Nick Searley? Kearley? Oh, yeah. And Joe Manganiello. Oh. I never, never able to say that guy's name. So, um, so yeah, Joe, whatever. You know, he's the guy from um, True Blood, the hot guy. And then Nick, he, Nick Searley, he is one of the um, the guys. Do you know the Skivvies? I don't. It's this group, this like a group out of New York, and they always perform in their underwear. Uh. And I, me and him became friends, I don't know, like 10 years or maybe 15 years ago. And we've just always like been buddies. And I was really, are we going to talk about working out? Yeah, I want to talk about, about health and we yeah. covered and the so alcohol. But. He started posting these photos of like him just like ripped to pieces. And I was like, oh my God, what what have you done to your body? You know what I mean? I was like, you look incredible and you seem so happy. And he was like, oh, I read this book, Evolution by Joe Manganiello. We'll go with that. That was much better than mine. Yeah. We'll say Joe. Joe M. <laughs> I just always say it really quickly. Right. I always say Sophia Vergaro's husband. I mean, you know, that's who. Oh, really? Yeah, they're married. Well, look what I'm learning. I know, right? Um, and so I read his book, and it kind of like made my head explode about working out. And th- the results were great, right? It's like fun to, you know, be in shape. But for me, it was my, it really helped my like mental happiness and just like connectedness. Um, and I took the same way, like I had that emotional connection to alcohol. I realized I had this emotional connection to food and I was just eating crap and I felt kind of like lethargic. So anyways, I changed my diet and workout plan three months ago and some change and I feel really good. That's awesome. Uh, what else do you do to relax? How do you handle the stress of these projects? They're not stressful. So I will, I, will, I would honestly say I, I don't let myself get stressed anymore. I, again, there, like today, being stuck in traffic, I was like, I asked myself, what can I change right now? And if there's nothing I can change, I was like, you know what? I'm just going to sit in this car. I'm going to listen to my Karen Carpenter Christmas music. <laughs> and I'm just going to breathe. Um, the only thing that I would say truly stresses me out is... Like having to, someone that I really care about, having to have hard conversations with them. You know, I think that the most stressful thing about being a leader is having to sometimes be a disciplinary or have these hard conversations of like, you know, when people, everyone makes mistakes, right? But the one thing that I have a zero tolerance for is um, not being honest or being, and I'm very loyal. So when I feel like I've been, lied to or you know not been loyal to you have to have conversations you know but i was like honesty is king everything else is trainable what was the question yeah <laughs> how do you well, how do i stressful cope? situation but it, you're saying i really i mean i really say as as long as i meditate in the mornings as long as i'm able to be outside um and as long as i'm kind of active like i love 
I love going to Starbucks, grabbing a coffee, and going and spending 20 bucks at TJ Maxx. Like, I would say I love shopping. It's one of, like, my therapies. But it's not about buying expensive things. I do like nice stuff occasionally. But I just love going to Target and roaming around and grabbing something. It's, like, it's very... That is relaxing to me. And also my family fuels me. You know, my grandmother passed away a few years ago, but my mom is still living and fabulous. And I've got my sister and her wife, and they've got three incredible kids. So I like to to really be present with them. And they kind of refuel me. I love it. Uh, you've been very generous with your time. Is there anything you wish I had asked you? And where can people find you? I, don't, I think we've pretty much talked about it, right? I'm an open book, though, so anybody's got follow-up questions, hit me up. Um, so you can check out my website, brianclaudus.com, and then I'm also on Instagram and Facebook, just my name, Brian Cloudus, B-R-I-A-N-C-L-O-W-D-U-S. Um, I don't really tweet. I just never could get into it. It's... Uh... It's you're not missing anything. Okay, yeah, it's like, that's the one you won't find. I'm, I think I'm on Twitter, but don't go there. I get on there to just remind myself that it's a place with no nuance, and then it, I leave. Yeah, it's sort of fun to like stalk people, but yeah, gotcha. That's me. Well, until we meet again, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Origin Story curated by Pinecone Turkey. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can do so by leaving us a rating on iTunes. Thanks for listening.